0: Well, good evening. Welcome to Wednesday night community. Um, last week I, I, I made an error and I forgot to, uh, to, to ask the ushers to come forward at the beginning to uh, collect our tithes and offering. So uh, Dave said that they were going to take it out of my paycheck. So you have to give double. This time, Um, no, uh, I will ask our ushers to come forward. This this is this is for Timberline family members um, who who find your home here at Timberline. Thank you for giving. Thank you for faithful stewardship. And we've we've already prayed so you can go ahead and pass those Um, couple quick announcements here. One is um, well, actually let me say something about this coming up weekend here. I'm going to Saturday take my four little kids trick or treating and we'll we'll do all that sort of thing. But. Uh, The 31st is also another significant day in the Christian calendar. And so I want to just kind of say a word about that because it's so easy for those of us who aren't coming from kind of a more of a a high church that we we don't engage with the Christian calendar uh, to our peril, I think. Um, This this coming up uh, Saturday, the 31st is Reformation Day. All of us who are part of a Protestant church our Protestantism to the Reformation. Um, so, in fact, in two years, in 2017, it'll be the 500th anniversary of this momentous uh, thing that happened. Martin Luther, the, the, the German uh, priest who, by his actions in, um, on October 31st, uh, 1517, that was the day that he went and he nailed his 95 objections, what are called the 95 theses. This is the way that, that you would typically um, say, I want to have a public debate. I want to have a public discussion about this. You would go to the church door. don't do this here. Um, and, he, and he nailed these to the church door. And it was not uncommon. It wasn't weird. He wasn't, you know, vandalizing the church or anything. He was simply saying, these are things I want us to talk about because I and he didn't want to leave the church. He said, I want to reform it. And that's that kind of started the fires of of the Reformation. And one one thing that's so great about this day is even though we tend to talk about characters, you know, Zwingli or Calvin or Luther, the most important character in this is scripture. Um, What it was that 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 Luther realized um, one year earlier in uh, 1516. the, the Bible was was translated into Greek, the New Testament, which was uh, which was the original language. They I shouldn't say translated into. It was uh, finally the Greek text was in their hands. Previous to this, it was in Latin, so it had gone through another language. And Luther started finding things in the original language, things like rather it doesn't say um, that you should do penance, which is you doing something for your sins. You should repent and accept what he's done. The idea that that we're not saved by faithfulness, but we're saved by faith and he just started to go, this is this is different. And so it's a, it's a huge moment, and I want us as followers of Christ, those of us who are, to, to kind of make, uh, make note of these important times, to be thankful, to thank God for them, even though our, our Catholic brothers and sisters and our Greek Orthodox brothers and sisters, we embrace, we're, we're all one under Christ, but some of these distinctives are important. So that's coming up, Reformation Day here, so hopefully you guys will... I don't know. Celebrate. It. Read read a passage of the Bible or something. Um, we're we're in a series here, looking at frequently asked questions, kind of some tough questions. And for these last four weeks, we only have four more weeks in the in the fall here. Uh, on the 18th is our final Wednesday night, and then we take a break for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we'll start back up in January. Um, we're going to be doing a series, uh, well, it's still within this series, Frequently Asked Questions, but it's all about the idea of sexuality, marriage, singleness, uh, same-sex attraction, monog- you know, all, all these sorts of issues that come up in contemporary culture when, when we talk about sexuality. And so what we're going to do in the very last day is um, we're going to have like a panel discussion up here. And so... Um, there's going to be about 5 or 6 of us and um, we're going to be answering questions that, that you guys have had um, during this series. And so the way that I want to the way that I want to do it here, if I can show you this on the side screens, we, we have a oh, it's not side screens over right here. Uh, we we have a telephone number that this is Pastor Derry's private cell. So call him. No, I'm kidding. Um, You can you can text in your questions anytime you could do it during service. You could do it later. Text them in and they'll go to this Google site and we'll we'll collect all these questions. And these will be the ones that that we're going to be asking the panelists about any topics surrounding this idea of sexuality and in scripture and the gospel and that that sort of thing. So please feel free to do that as uh, as we go. And then one one note. This is in your bulletin. Um, Those of you who do have children coming with you and sitting with you just just be aware of the mature nature of the subject Nothing is going to be, you know profane or vulgar or anything like that But just in terms of the appropriateness of it I'll let you guys kind of think about that and just be aware of that Um, Let's see here. Let me go to uh, I'll leave it up for a second in case you want to write that down I should have put that in the bulletin. I apologize um, for about, well, for millennia, for a long, long time, cultures, civilizations, ha- have defined marriage, the institution of marriage, as an exclusive, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. There have been certain times in certain cultures where it's been um, one man and several women. Even some rare cultures where it's been one woman and several man, polyandry and polygamy have been practiced in small areas. But it's always been understood as a male-female relationship all throughout time. Um, in fact, two decades ago, even just in our own country, two decades ago, there, there were a group of politicians across party lines and absolute you know, both sides um, who, who tried to do something called the Defense of Marriage Act in order to say, we we do need to have clarity on this. They were looking for clarity. In 2013, the the Supreme Court of the United States struck down key aspects um, of that act, which which kind of paved the way for what we've talked about as a redefinition of of marriage. And then of course, what happened even this year with the SCOTUS decision, um, really putting that into law uh, specifically the, the idea that uh, people of the same sex could, could be in a so-called marriage. Um, it's, it's difficult to get exact data on this, but most of the census information that we get uh, uh, projects that nearly half of all first marriages, we've heard this, end in divorce. Um, and, and that's even if people get married. People are, are not getting married uh, as early and the, the marriage rates are declining um, overall. Uh, the marital union is clearly on decline in Western culture anyway. According to um, one author named Mark Rigueris, he wrote an article back in 2009 in Christianity Today in which he made a case for early marriage, he was saying, I'm going to make a case for not not waiting. And he pointed out some interesting stats here just a few years ago. Um, He went on to say that over the past 40 years, the number of independent female households in the U.S. has grown by 65 percent, while the number of independent male households has skyrocketed, jumping 120 percent. And as a result, fewer than half, this is interest, this is Currently, fewer than half of all American households today are made up of married couples. Fewer than half of all households today are made up of married couples. So there's an enormous amount of just confusion in our culture surrounding this idea and these ideas. Uh, Dallas Willard, who was one of my heroes, he passed away just uh, a couple years ago. He, he made an interesting point about confusion. He said, anytime in a culture, when you have confusion over something, it, it leads to license. It leads to lack of accountability. And here's, here's kind of how he went on to explain that. He said, think about this. If, if you're in a situation with, with others and um, no one knows the right thing to do, right, you're not accountable. Does that make sense? If you and a group of people are in a situation and no one knows the correct thing to do, no one's responsible. No one's accountable for it. So if you're in a culture where, where, where people just say, well, we just don't know on these matters of value. We just, we just can't know. What it leads to is a lack of accountability and, again, an idea of license, he would argue. And I think that's what, what we have seen here. Now, the gospel, the Christian worldview, the gospel begins to offend modern western culture by the very first words of the bible i would suggest uh this evening we're going to be in genesis a little bit if you want to turn your bibles or smartphones or whatever we're going to be in genesis 1 2 and 3 and then we're going to be in um, ephesians um, mostly genesis 1 begins with these words okay now now think about the reality of this it begins with in the beginning god in the beginning god Genesis one one, the initial outrage that the human heart has to that statement is the idea that there is a God by, through, and for whom all things begin. Everything. Uh, Isaiah 40, later Hebrew prophet 40 verse 28 said, The Lord, Yahweh, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. What he's saying is there's nothing that exists that he's not the author of, that he doesn't have authorial intent over, because all things begin with God, and ultimately they exist for God, if he's the creator of him. Nothing, here's the point, nothing in all of creation is irrelevant to God. Have you ever thought about it that way? Nothing in all of creation is irrelevant to him, and we're part of creation. Nothing about us is irrelevant to God. Now, the very first claim of the gospel brings, brings a confrontation because it says that God is in every single person's sandbox. He's in every single person's life in the sense of he is present. And, and he has say over all of creation, including ourselves. So the one who created us owns us. We're not, as the, as the famous poem Invictus uh, says, we're not masters of our own fate. We're not captains of our own destiny, right? That, that sounds kind of cool, but that's the exact opposite of what the gospel lays out. The author of all creation, he has absolute authority over all of creation. And so we are, here's kind of a keyword, accountable, <laughs> we 're accountable to him, um, words are used for him like assessor judge he has the the, the, the right to assess us, to judge us and all of it, all of creation and so this puts us in a in a desperate need for god 's grace when we understand I fall short of that and if you tell any modern Westerner today that there is a God who sustains owns defines rules and one day will judge him or her they will absolutely balk they 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 will laugh they will say that's ridiculous they will recoil any person would and every person has recoiled at that idea this is our natural reaction to god after the fall that's genesis 3 um Take a look at the Genesis account. I want us to kind of think about, we're going to be jumping around here, like I said, in mostly Genesis 2, a little bit in Genesis 3. So Genesis 1 is is the account of God making heaven and earth. And what you see as you read it is it's, it's a listing of binaries. Duality. There's this and there's this. There's heaven and there's earth. There's dry land and there's sea. There's this and this and so on and so on. The whole account is these binaries. The last pair of binaries is man and woman. It's leading in in this sort of binary form all throughout the account. And so it's all about God making complementary pairs. For each other for for everything and then God parades in Genesis to God God parades all of the animals before Adam and and the statements that's made is it says there wasn't one that was suitable meaning fittable It didn't work. There wasn't anyone who could who could be a helpmate meaning be what he needed He he had a need there And so, um, as a result of this, God, under divine surgery and divine anesthetic, apparently, he he brings woman out of man. And the very first human-recorded words in all of Scripture come in the form of a poem. He literally sings it, because it's in poetic form. The very first words recorded, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Genesis two twenty three. See, the author of Genesis is making something very, very clear that when God brings Eve out of Adam, it's not just a union. It's a reunion. It's the idea that he he takes her out, but then brings her back and says, here, this is this is what will meet your need. This is the reunion of, of these binaries, of these complementary parts of humanity. Now, notice, notice when it said in Genesis, when it says, you know, he did all these things. And Of, of course, if you know the text, it says that each time God did something, there, there was a value judgment made on it. Good. This was good. This was good. This was good. The only time that, that we hear the, the opposite of that, not good, is when it gets to Adam and he, he's, he's alone. He's out of relationship. And it says, that's not good. And so the, God, God presses home to Adam, you have a need. You have something that there's a need for. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, so go find it. You know, that would be you know, kind of a Western approach would say, go find yourself. You know, find what works for you. God says, I know your needs better than you do. And then he says, I'll fill it for you. I'm going to fulfill your need. And so there's this special creation of Eve and especially designed to meet his particular needs. Now, don't, don't miss the significance of this scene here. God brings man to the realization that he needs someone with the same nature as him, but who possesses different qualities from him in order to help him do the things that he, he just couldn't do by himself. This is, this is specifically what God gives Adam when he gives him a woman and in the very very next verse verse 24 we read therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh see the variables of the story set up the need for the institution the only reason that that, that marriage as an institution needs to exist is because of the way that God baked into reality All the variables, everything that's there—that's why marriage exists. So this is a—it's a story of God's beautiful design of man, of woman, of marriage. Two dignified people, both having equal dignity, both equally, equally reflecting the image of God, um, molded in His Maker. Two diverse people, uniquely designed to complement each other listen listen to the words of uh, David Platt he writes this a male and a female fashioned by God to form one flesh a physical bond between two bodies now this is interesting listen to what he's saying here physical bond between two bodies where the deepest point of union he's talking about sexuality where the deepest point of union is found at the greatest point of difference a matrimony marked by unity in diversity Equality with variety and personal satisfaction through shared consummation. So what, what we have laid out, and th- this week is kind of more just setting the scene for the rest of you know, these next three weeks here. We're going to be getting into kind of more specifics. But I want us to have a decent grasp on this because this is what Jesus always did. Do you remember the time in the Gospels where Jesus was asked about all of these case situations About divorce, he said, well, what about this case? What about that case? What if the guy's like this? Or what if this? All these different variables. He goes, what about this? And he just goes, well, what did God do in the beginning? Remember, that's just what he quoted him. He goes, what does it say? What what happened in the beginning? What he did is he pointed to authorial intent. He said, now, his audience bought into the authority of God. So he didn't have to really argue for that. But he said, well, what did the author intend? One man, one woman, lifelong monogamous marriage. Done. Done. That solves all of the what about this case? What about that case? What about this case? Because it's easier to rationalize when you get into all these cases. So we need to do the same. And Genesis has such a foundational place in our understanding of what it means to be human. End of life issues. I mean, tons of issues that we come in contact with. This has to be there. So let me let me let me look at a couple things here. First thing, the first thing that we understand about marriage is that. It's, it's a covenant, not, now, not a contract. Notice the two words, covenant versus contract. Now, think, think for a little bit with me about the distinction between these two concepts of things that we, many of us, engage in. You make a contract out of mistrust, right? I want to be sure that you're going to do what you said you'll do. So I get a contract to make sure that you'll do it. A covenant is a relationship made out of trust. It's different. It's a commitment to give oneself to the other. A contract, here's a a second thing. A contract is written to create limited liability. A covenant is accepted or it's embraced in order to embrace unlimited responsibility. You know, every every single time that I do a wedding, I I talk about this for like a minute or two because I I want people to understand you're you're entering a covenant and it's not a contract. And given our culture, you know, we live in in such a culture where it's really easy to start thinking about our, our place as consumers. Contracts are written you know, for consumers. You've got a return policy. you got this, that sort of thing. This is so, so different. And it's unlike really anything else that, that we ever um, engage in. Well, why, why covenant? Why is a covenant so, so important? What's, what's unique about it? Why does marriage need a covenant? And next week we're going to be talking about you know, if, 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 if you're single, it's going to be easy to hear some of this. Or if you've had difficult time in your past, is oh, that's for this group of people. No, this is, this is for everyone. Next week, we're going to be talking about singleness. We're going to be talking about a lot of different issues here as we go. Um, why is a covenant so important? Let me, let me give you four reasons that marriage, a sexual union, needs a covenant. The first one is this, because you'll change. Um, think about this. If if I were to give you a piece of paper, or you were to write on your bulletin, um, and I were to say, "Okay, r- write down all the things that have changed you in your life," you know, like did you go to college? Did you get a job? Did you move? You know, things, uh, relationships. You know, my parents, or I lost a family member. You would say those things have changed you, right? I would suggest nothing will change you more than entering into a covenant, lifelong, monogamous relationship so what you're entering into so here's the point there's a there's a a a idea out there which is a fiction and that is the right person (laughs) because if you find the right person the minute you marry them they're going to change so they're not the right person anymore you'll never marry quote-unquote the right person in any way because it it will change you um Duke University uh, has a professor named Stanley Hauerwas, and he's he's written about this idea. He made this statement one time, which I I loved because I thought he just he nailed it. Um, He wrote that uh, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed. And each of the five has been me. (laughs) What he's saying is I can mark different times in my life, given job changes and given different things of kids and empty nest and all these different things that. Deeply, deeply changed me as a person. And he identifies it. I I can identify five distinct periods in my life where I'm different. You will change. Your spouse will change. And so Howard Wass shows that this this quest for the perfect compatible. That's kind of a key word. I need to find someone who is compatible with me. Kind of a soulmate. It's impossible. It's a fiction. Marriage brings you in more intense proximity and closeness to another human being than any other relationship that you'll ever have. Therefore, the moment you marry someone, your spouse will begin to change. You will begin to change. And you can't know, here's the frustrating part, ahead of time what those changes will be. (laughs) You don't know for either for you or for them. And so all you can do is promise To be that person in the future who says I will still be here so change change comes let me give you another reason and it's 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 similar to this one there's definitely some overlap Um, or I'm sorry the next uh, the third one there's some overlap number two is you're you're broken by sin Um, any two people who enter into marriage are both spiritually broken uh, relationally you know messed up Um, I remember I think it's Pete, Pete, Pete Scazzero who says, uh, you know, oftentimes people say, well, you know, once I become a Christian, you know, I kind of, you know, I've got Jesus in my heart. And I he always responds, Yeah, you've got grandpa in your bones. Like, like, you are who you are because your family of origin, your personality, and your hardwiring, your experiences, those don't get flushed away and wiped away. It's a slow process in the Bible to call that sanctification. You have coming to be like Christ, but it doesn't wash those things away in our life at all. Um, and so any two people, let me, let me read you this statement here because I thought it was so good. Um, this, this author, Dennis wrote this. He talked about people who come together who are broken and messed up and that sort of thing. And he said, there's this kind of idea that once I get married, especially if I find a, a person who's compatible, you know, the first one, then it'll, it'll be like a, just a fit, a puzzle piece. It'll be great. And there won't be any problems. He made this great statement. He said, why should neurotic, selfish, immature people suddenly become angels when they fall in love? <laughs> well, of course not. They don't. We don't. All of our difficulties, I bring all of those into a marriage and they bring all of theirs. But we, we have this almost notion that, well, once I find just the right person, they're just going to be the other side of me. You complete me. You know, all that sort of thing. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute here when we talk about how marriage functions. The sin and the brokenness. Um, third thing that that covenant does and why it's so important in the context of a sexual union between a man and a woman is that your commitments shape your identity. Um, see, why is why is binding or a binding promise about the future of love so, so crucial to uh, to creating a really deep significant, robust, lasting passion. Um, one, one Christian ethicist, Lewis Smeeds, wrote an article um, years ago about this idea. Um, the article was called Con- Controlling the Unpredictable, the Power of Promising. Um, and basically he says a person's identity is, is built largely, almost, not, not entirely, but largely on the promises that they make and keep. I mean, let me read free his words because he says it better than I can say. Some people ask who they are and they expect their feelings to tell them. But feelings are flickering flames and fade after every fitful stimulus. Some people ask who they are and expect their achievements to tell them. But the things we accomplish always leave a core of character unrevealed. Some people ask who they are and expect visions of their ideal self to tell them. But our visions can only tell us what we want to be, not what we are. So who are we? <laughs> well, Smead says that the answer is that you, you largely become the person you become through making wise promises and keeping those promises. Uh, and then he gives kind of a very vivid picture, which I, I love this picture uh, He refers to the great playwright, uh, Robert Bolt, who who wrote the play A Man for All Seasons. Um, This is about Sir Thomas More, and he had fallen out of favor with with the throne. And because of his his commitment, his verbal commitment to what he said he would not support, um, he's going to be killed. And so he's waiting in prison, Sir Thomas More is, and his daughter Meg comes to him to to beg because she knows way he can get out of prison. And so this is the this is the exchange that, that goes on. Thomas More says, you want me to swear to the act of succession, meaning you want me to change what I said was accurate, what, what went against his convictions? And she said and she quotes like a phrase that he had told her many times before. Um, God more regards the thoughts of the heart than the words of the mouth. Or so you've always told me. And he says, yes, she says, then say the word of oath and in your heart, think otherwise. And more response. he says, what is an oath then but words we say to God? She said, it's very neat. He said, do you mean it isn't true? She says, no, it's true. He says, well, then it's a poor argument to call it neat. And then listen to what he says at the end here. I love this. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. He says, Meg, when a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his hands like water. And if he opens his fingers then he needn't hope to find himself again. That's that picture. See, promise keeping is key to my identity. Promise keeping is key to your identity. I've got a, I've got a good friend in life who, who just found themselves after many, many years of, of faithful marriage um, alone because, because his spouse you know, wanted to upgrade you know, to a new version and, and so ran off. And she's, she's, she's used language like... He's a different person. And she's struggling with this idea that his identity has changed. Because in this extreme act, who he is, the foundation of it, has been altered in some way. See, it's our promise that gives us a stable identity. Without a stable identity, it's impossible to have stable relationships. Um, One author wrote this. Without being bound to the fulfillment of our promises, we would never be able to keep our identities. We would be condemned to wander helplessly and without direction in the darkness of each person's lonely heart, caught in contradictions and equivocalities. Um, Smead uh, uses his own uh, situation. and I quote a little bit of this earlier. Let me read a, a larger part. He, he says it very well. He says, when I married my wife, Smead says, um, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what i was getting into with her <laughs> how could i know how much she would change over 25 years how could i know how much i would change my wife this is the part that i read earlier my wife has lived with at least five different men. i'm sorry yeah, five different men since we were wed and each of the five has been me the connecting link here's the important part he says if i've been five different people and she's been ten different people you know Gosh, it seems like you should be able to, you know, end it and, you know, marry someone else. Because you're not, you're not the same person. And he says, uh-uh, there's one thing that's connecting. All those five people, there's one thing that connects them all. The connecting link with my old self has, has always been the memory of the name I took back there. And he says, here was the name that I took when I stood at that altar. The name was, I am he who will be there with you. Meaning it's a future promise. I always tell couples when they're getting married... Your vow is not that you're going to love them now or, 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 or it's not oh how much I love you and how much you know, your vow is a, a, a promise of future reality. That's what you're doing in a vow. And he says, when we slough off that name, the idea that I will be I will be the one who will be there with you, uh, lose that identity, we can hardly find ourselves again. Very, very true. Let me give you a fourth one. Why covenant is so key and so important. Um, because feelings ebb and flow. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of his chapters in the book, Mere Christianity, he talks about, okay, what is, what is Christian marriage? And uh, he writes this, he says, people get from books, he's talking about novels, romantic stories, people get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, we talked about that a second ago, you may expect to uh, go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they're not, they think this proves they have made a mistake. And are entitled to change. Not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. What he's pointing out is that in, in any single relationship, there comes a, a terribly scary, troubling time. When the feelings aren't what they were. When the excitement and the passion seems not to be at the same place. You might not feel tender, sympathetic eager to please them. Um, so what do you do? Uh, Mother Teresa had this great statement one time, which I think applies well to all relationships. She said, do great things with great love. She said, if you can't do great things, do small things with great love. Um, if you can't do that, do them anyway. I mean, if you can't do them with love, act in the way of love, and you'll find that feelings oftentimes come as a byproduct. But don't, don't be led by feelings, because it just, it just doesn't work. And so this is what can happen. Many, many people would suggest, many people would testify to that when they get to those points, it's precisely then that I need to keep acting in love toward my li- toward my wife. Um, Lewis, Lewis makes this last statement and. Uh, it's a little bit of a hard one, but think about think about what he's saying here. He's talking about this idea that. Um, Oh, gosh, I wish I were still just as excited, you know, and had that same passion, uh, you know, when my wife and I first got married, and, you know, trying to hold on to that, trying to keep that sort of thing. And he said, This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it dies first. Remember, Jesus said, If you want to find your life, you must lose it for me. He talked about that sort of idea a couple of different places. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follows. He says, and you'll find when you do that, that you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. How does that happen? Well, I think think many... Many of those times happen something like this when you're first attracted to someone and and, and there's so much excitement. There's so much passion and and that sort of thing. um, The ego rush can't sustain that for very long. But that's that's what's there initially. And if you if you let if you let that go, meaning you're not trying to hold on to that, assuming that has to be there always slowly and surely. You find that your love, it, it's deepened. Um, one author likened it to two different pictures. He said, lots of times we can say, man, I want the noise of a, of, a, you know, of a bubbling brook and you know that sort of thing. He says, well, it's a lot quieter in a deep river, but it's also deeper. <laughs> and he says, love, love that moves to that point. Love that, love that pushes through some of the dry times, some of the difficult times. And, it, and does it in a way that honors the other, that respects and loves and that sort of thing. Finds this deeper river. And find something that's even more beautiful. It grows into a wiser, richer, deeper, less variable kind of love. But sadly, many of us don't get there because we keep thinking yeah, that's the wrong one, and so we just kind of keep jumping through it all. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was a, was a minister in in Germany. Uh, he he died at the hands of uh, Hitler, hanged um, because of his actions to go against him, and uh, he, he used to marry people as being a, a pastor or a minister. And uh, when he was marrying a couple, he, he would see, he would make this statement. He would say, from this day forward, it is the covenant that will sustain your love, not the other way around. It's the covenant that will sustain your love, not the love that will sustain your covenant. And he said, you've got to get that right. Or it'll be an absolute mess for you. So think, think about some of the consequences Of the fall we talked about Genesis Genesis 3 let's take a look at Genesis 3 is the cosmic rebellion where where the enemy comes to Eve and deceives her uh, rebels against God Um, and the consequence Paul picks up in Ephesians 5 we'll look at that too in a second here God God addresses the consequence of roles and gender um, there's, a, there's a verse, a statement made in verse 16 of chapter 3. He says to the woman, but it's referring to both both sides of the relationship. He says, "Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you." Um, commentators suggest that this idea of your desire will be for your husband is the idea of control. You're going to want to attempt to control, manipulate him, but it's going to it's going to look like him lording over you. Both both of these really, really. Ineffective broken ways of what God originally intended in roles based on gender previously Um, In the fall Adam and Eve fall into abuses of the role Um, So for instance, a woman either becomes manipulative or she becomes a doormat A man either becomes passive Or he becomes domineering and so the command in Ephesians 5, now that's, that's what you have to have in mind. When you go to Ephesians 5, and we'll read this here in just a second, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 33. You have to have that in mind that what Paul's doing is Paul's saying, this is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel has the ability to, to change that brokenness of what happened with Adam's Paul and how that impacted his role, what he was originally intended to do and how that got perverted and messed up and and exploits now. And the same thing with Eve's role. So let me read Ephesians uh, chapter five, starting in verse 21. Paul writes this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He said, wives, submit to um, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Then he dresses the men, the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water, through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant bride without stain, without wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then he goes on and he 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 attaches it a few verses later back in Genesis where he quotes. And he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father, and mother, be united, become one flesh. And then he makes this great statement at the very end. He says, this is a profound mystery. Um, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. Um, now, this, this is one of those hot points. I, I, I totally understand that. There, there are many people who would say, oh, that submission thing, especially women, because there's been abuses of it where they would say that. I think it's horrible. It's awful. Um, yes, absolutely, there are abuses. But here's the thing you always have to keep in mind. In this context, listen to how Paul said it should be done. How should, how should men take responsibility as headship in the family? He said, as Christ did to the church. Um there's a woman I know who said I always bristled at this concept. She said uh until until I I was reading a passage um Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 there's this there's this uh kind of poetic statement made about Christ and it says Christ who who had absolute equality with God the Father. Did it, didn't did consider his equality something to be grasped onto for his own benefit, but instead he took on the role of a servant and she said this. If 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 Jesus could now in Christian theology, the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, all members of the of the divine Godhead have absolute equal status, equal uh, divine qualities and that sort of thing. And yet the son voluntarily chooses the role that he does in the, in the act of salvation and, and so forth. And she said, if if Jesus can do it and it doesn't bring any harm to the second person of the Trinity, I guess I can do it. She said, I'm, it's, it's not demeaning because Jesus isn't demeaned and he is voluntarily stepping into that that role. So remember, back from Genesis, obedience to God from us Looks like voluntarily accepting God's prescribed roles for us. God, God, in, God engineers sexuality, he engineers gender, he engineers this whole thing, and he says these are roles that I'm asking you to step into. It has nothing to do with competency or anything like that. These are roles that I—that's where we talked at the beginning. As the author, am saying this is the, this is the way it is. Um, real quickly let me let me do a couple things on uh, I want to talk about how two ways to think about marriage. Um, you can think about marriage one as you need to find your soulmate uh, you need to find the person who will complete you. This is largely centered around self fulfillment uh you know it's accompanied by sexual gratification, but it's it's this idea of I need to find the right person for me or to think about marriage as a spiritual friendship that you're entering into for the journey to new creation, to God's perfect creation. Um, see, what, what if you expected marriage to be more about helping each other grow out of your sins, out of your brokenness, into your, your glory self, the picture that God has in mind um, because when you merge your life with someone, um, all the flaws come out. Um, I mean, let me read for you a couple statements that uh, Tim Keller makes because I think he says it well. He says, um, you, may, you may be a fearful person with a tendency toward great anxiety. You may be a proud person with a tendency to be opinionated and selfish. You may be an inflexible person with a tendency to be demanding and sulky if you don't get your way. You may be an abrasive or harsh person who people tend to respect more than they love. You may be an undisciplined person with a tendency to be unreliable and disorganized. You may be an uh, oblivious person. And he goes on, he says, all of us have these, these broken pieces to us. And he said, other people see it. Your parents know. If you have siblings, that they know, if you had a college roommate, you know, he or she knows. If you have coworkers, they know a little bit about it. And even if they brought it up to you in the past, you could kind of, ah, they don't know me that well. Um, and they probably didn't keep bringing it up to you and keep bringing it up to you because they're not confronted with that day in and day out. But see, if, if you're married, you're, you're entering into a relationship where your, your wife or your husband finds out about your sins um, not the way your counselor finds out about your challenges or your doctor finds out about your illnesses. Usually, the the sins are toward them. I know my wife finds out a lot about my sins because it's oftentimes directed toward her. Um, this this last year, uh, I think I mentioned this at the at the start of. Um, Wednesday night I was saying one of my highlights for the summer was going up to Minnesota where my dad grew up in northern Minnesota um, Little town called sturgeon lake and just being on the lake and it it was just a wonderful time with the with the whole family and As we drove around to kind of the uh, East side of the lake there's there's a little island and it's just connected by this tiny little kind of covered bridge You know sort of thing and uh, it's over water and think about think about marriage like this. Imagine a bridge which is quite sound. It might have some hair, you know, hairline fractures that, upon close inspection, although this is this is concerning. But 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 just to the naked eye, it looks fine. It looks strong. Now imagine a 10 ton Mack truck driving across that. Okay. When you get married, your spouse is a 10 ton Mack truck. I'm not making any comments about weight, but it's a Mack truck that hits your heart. Your spouse doesn't cause the challenges and the defects and all that they just expose. It's actually it's not them. The marriage, the the nature of the relationship just exposes the flaws and the brokenness that's there. But it doesn't create. And see, I have a tendency. I've said this to my wife before in the past. You know, we've been getting, uh, you know, we've gotten into a fight in an argument. And I've done something that I need to take responsibility for. And I'll say, well, you made me like that. You know, what I'm saying is it's your fault I'm like this as opposed to saying it's. That was inside me and it came out. It was the situation. But that was me. No one makes me do anything. And that's really how marriage functions um, in our lives. Um, This is what I would suggest a married couple's goal is. Uh, I say this in almost every wedding I've done. I say, you know, you, you guys look gorgeous. You're standing before me. You've got these great, beautiful clothes on. And I say, but your, your, your goal in life is to one day stand, not before me, but before God, and have, have him say, so you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants. You've lifted each other up. You've encouraged one another toward me in relationship. And this reality that you'll be standing in such beauty, such gorgeous array, it'll make what you have on right now look like absolute rags. That should be your absolute goal in life That's that's the goal in marriage because see the gospel and this is what what paul does if we had more time I wish we could kind of take ephesians 5 apart a little bit more But what paul does go back and read it is he says the marriage is a picture pointing To what god has at the end of time Because see the beginning of the bible starts with a marriage adam and eve in the garden The end of the bible ends with a marriage And it's christ in his church uh Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is questioned one time about marriage covenants, and he says marriage covenants are only for this life. Any, any marriage covenant you, you, you enter into is a this life covenant. People in, in resurrection, in glory, there's not marriage. It's not because there's less than marriage. It's because there's something better. There's something more than marriage in that way. So then why marriage? Why is it, why is it from the start? Why is it in here? I would suggest that even the best marriages... All have to give way to something better. Marriage is a—it's a shadow, an earthly shadow of something beyond. It's a road sign pointing to something beyond it, and it's going to give way to something that's eternal. In fact, on that day when Christ unites with His Church, and all the heavens will shout in the words of Revelation 19:6, "Hallelujah for the Lord our God Almighty." Reigns let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come And the bride has made herself ready John writes In the book of revelation toward the end verse nine he says the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are Invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these words are True and trustworthy And then john describes uh, Actually, John the Baptist, one time his disciples approached Jesus while he's still on the earth. And he says, how come how come your students don't fast? Um, We do. The Pharisee students fast. How come how come you guys don't fast? And Jesus said, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. And on that night that Jesus was betrayed, um, when the bridegroom was betrayed, he, he spoke of that future wedding supper of the lamb that that would come that cosmic day. And he, he said, I won't drink this wine again until that marriage supper between him and the church, between him and us. See, here's the point. The reason why we should care a whole heck of a lot about marriage is is because it's a picture of what God is to us, of of what his plans are for creation. It's a picture of the goodness of creation. It's a picture of how he is going to move into that kind of relationship with us. And to the degree that our culture hasn't seen that, we, we probably haven't held it up very well. We haven't lived out marriage in a way that pictures a... A, a, a wife submitting, serving, recognizing responsibility to a man and a man sacrificially serving, loving, caring for his wife. The same way that Jesus, you know, Jesus is on the floor washing the disciples feet at that last minute. But they had no I mean, there was no question as to who was in charge <laughs> and he's serving because he loves them so much. He wants their best to the degree that we paint that picture by living it out. The world sees a picture of what God is doing through Christ. And even though Jesus said, I won't drink of that cup again until that final marriage supper. He said, I want you to keep drinking of it. I want you to do it. Because every time you do it, you, you proclaim my death in the past. And you proclaim the coming of the bride in the future. And so we do that. We do that every week here. I'll ask our ushers to come forward and to distribute these, these elements. These are the elements that, that the bridegroom... Jesus said best speak and remind ourselves of what it is that we've given our lives to. The way Christ loves the church is embodied in these elements. Uh, the bread, his, his body broken, the cup, his blood shed. So as these are passed, hold on to them, and um, and then we'll come back and take them together.